But what I think is important is that people recognize equity work is not just about, you know, this negative, you know, listing out all of the wrongdoings that have ever been wrong to every person of color in this country. It's about making space for joy, for identity. Mm -hmm for liberation, for who you are, for resting, you know, for, for being the fullest version of yourself. And I think when people start to think of it that way, A, it feels less daunting because I know that there are a lot of well-intentioned, you know, white or cis or straight folks who are kind of like, I don't even know where to go because this feels like a marathon. Like I'm like, you know, trying to climb Mount Everest. And it shouldn't feel that way. It should feel like something really exciting and life-giving mm. to to embrace like the fullest sense of humanity in yourself and others. Welcome to the Kindness Is podcast, where we take a deep dive into the true meaning of kindness. I'm your host, Caitlin Johnstone, the co-founder of Kind Cotton. Let's dive in. Wake up. There is not a day that goes by that I don't look at my daughter and feel this immense amount of joy and sadness at the same time. There is not a day that's gone by recently where I don't continually question our shared humanity. What I will tell you is that conversations such as the one that I had today with our guest bring me a little bit of joy and a lot of hope. And hope is something that I think that we need to continue to hold on to while we continue to walk down a path of ensuring that we fight for humanity, that we embrace one another, that we come together and ensure that things such as equity and inclusion are at the forefront of education, are at the forefront of our everyday lives, because if not, then what? I know that I will continue to do everything that I can, not only for my child, but for all children. So that when children look back 30 years from now, they see that there were adults who tried everything that they could to ensure that humanity remains sacred. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Kindness Is Pod. I'm really excited today. As you all know, I am a former educator. So whenever I get another <laughs> educator in this space, I'm just the happiest human on the face of the planet. So today I have Dr. Deanna Smith. She is also a former teacher and school leader and educational justice advocate. With over a decade of experience, Deanna has worked with students and teachers in grades K through 12, and even in the higher education setting. As a student, teacher, DEI practitioner, and administrator, Deanna saw firsthand how inequitable our schools could be. But she also saw the potential for schools to be spaces of liberation and joy. Her passion for connecting theory with practice led her to pursue and complete her doctoral degree in education and social justice. Now she works with education stakeholders across the country to fight for joyful, inclusive, and equitable spaces for students. And her latest book, Rooted in Joy, Creating a Classroom, Community of Equity, Belonging, and Care, is a guide that blends that theory narrative and practical tools that can help teachers across the country. 
Deanna, that is an impressive resume. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of long, but yeah, hi. But I'm it's so, so good. Do you know yeah. that whenever I have someone on, I I always like pick and choose and tweak some things. And as I was looking at yours, I'm like, this is all too pertinent. Like I felt like I couldn't leave out pieces because it all just beautifully exemplified what you do. Yeah, thank you so much. It is it has definitely been a journey, but it's crazy how every single piece of that journey positioned me to this moment. Like right here, right mm -hmm. now, you recording this. I feel like it was all it was all designed. So excited yeah. to hear about that with you. Absolutely. What kind of inspired you to go in that direction? Because as you said, it all kind of goes together. It's all been kind of rooted in educational practices. And I'm curious how you got your start. Yeah, so I actually, I wanted to be a teacher as a child, but I grew up, and I talk a lot about this in the book, I grew up in an, like an all white environment. I grew up in mm -hmm. Eastern Washington and Spokane. So, um, and I grew up in a very, you know, I'm aging myself, but I grew up in a very different time than a lot of our students. Like there were no, there was no, even Princess Tiana, there was no black mm -hmm. little maid, there's no representation, like it was just a very different time. And so, I grew up really not seeing myself in the role of being a teacher. And so I didn't really think of myself as somebody that could do that. And I had really good teachers, but they weren't teachers that really um, saw me as like a young black woman really. Mm -hmm. And so it was something that I thought about, but never really something that I felt was accessible until um, I was finishing up college and I wanted to uh, actually go teach internationally. And then I was thinking about it and I would just realized that there was probably a lot of black girls who would really have appreciated having like me in their classroom. Like I've never, even to this day, never had a black teacher in, in undergrad, graduate, doctoral degree, elementary, nothing, never had a black teacher. And so, and, and I went to school in California. So it's like, it's not like I was, you know, in yeah. Iowa or anything. I've been in California, never had a black teacher. So I was just realizing that like it was on me to kind of be that like if that wasn't there then it someone was going to do it and it might as well have been me and so it really led me to this very purposeful very beautiful season of being a classroom teacher and I loved every minute of it I started out in East Oakland um teaching fifth grade and I taught like a lot of other things in between but it slowly morphed into me really becoming the the kind of diversity person on my campus and i use mm -hmm. that with air because i know y'all know what i'm talking about before the world was attuned to these issues post 2020 i was you know walking around with a copy of culture responsive teaching in the brain and like trying to get people to talk about it um and it just kind of grew from there and i've just been so grateful to be able to not just have like a, a strong history of like getting results for my kids, like the results that unfortunately matter, like moving them, you know, like them doing well in standardized testing and, and really seeing some great growth in my students, but also um, carrying that, like that torch for joy and culturally responsiveness and equity. And mm -hmm. so really my jobs have kind of morphed and I've just kind of like gone along with it. And the book is this last iteration that really came from people asking me all the time on social media, all of these questions. And I was like, I need a way to comprehensively answer all of these questions mm -hmm. instead of listening to my stories. And here we are now. <laughs> That's incredible. And for the people listening 
who may not know, I know we have a lot of educators, probably predominantly educators or people who really care about the educational space who listen, but anyone else who may be listening, like my mom, for example, who doesn't know, (laughs) hey mom, who doesn't know what culturally responsive teaching is. Can you explain that really quickly? Yeah, so culturally responsive teaching is one kind of branch of the asset pedagogy tree, which is basically a school of thought that believes that instead of seeing all of the ways that our students are lacking, what they're not doing, where they don't fit, instead we recognize that schools are should be designed and altered to meet the needs of our students and that our students are not lacking and empty when they come to school, but rather like very full, you know, brilliant, you know, little baby geniuses. And we use um, just a variety of tools to unlock that genius. And so, you know, joyful and inclusive teaching, culturally responsive teaching, um, ethnic studies, pedagogy, anti-racist teaching, all of that is just branches on the anti or on the asset-based Um, pedagogy tree. So it's just a way of approaching education that's a little bit different than the standard, what some of us listening might have experienced, right, where you go Mm -hmm. to school, you're wrong, the teacher is right, you're sitting, you're listening, you're, you know, writing 100 facts down in a minute and Mm kind of, you know, cut and dry. It's really moving away from that model. And I think that's something that all children benefit from. And We get wrapped up in this people who don't understand what it is thinking that it's not going to be beneficial for a student who may look like me, right? And then like you get all these things floating around that are complete misinformation and misguided. And I mean, when I was still kind of the the icing on the cake for me, uh, when I left the district that I was in, there were a lot of things going on. But one of the things that happened in the end is that we had this incredible, incredible man come in and kind of give us a training on culturally responsive teaching, right? And this was in 2020. Mm-hmm. And it may have even been 2021, I'm not quite sure. And the backlash that yeah. was received from white educators and white parents was unlike anything I had ever experienced and I should not have been shocked, right? Like that's the thing. There there should be no shock at this point um, or even back then. And it was something that I was extremely vocal about, like the point where people are like, Caitlin, why are you making this such a big deal? I'm like, because everyone in this district looks right. like me. And if we, if people who look like me are not saying something about this, what is happening now in Florida is going to happen. And people thought like, what do you mean? Like, there's no way that books are going to be pulled from shelves or accurate history is not going to be taught. Yeah. Look where we are. Yep. Yeah. (sighs) It is, it is scary. And it, and that's why I always say and, and help people understand the pedagogical underpinnings and the theoretical underpinnings of culture response, teaching equity, belonging, care is in asset pedagogies. Mm. Asset pedagogies have, are not, you know, racialized. I mean, mm-hmm. they impact different races differently, but there it's not, it doesn't come from a school of thought that's rooted in um, a nefarious idea about race. It's just seeing kids and recognizing that yes, our kids are bringing 
their whole cultures to the table. And that is, and, and, and I think it's because also white folks have a hard time conceptualizing that they too, in fact, do have a culture. Mm-hmm. So they're also bringing their culture to the table, but it's kind of hard to, it's hard to think of yourself as having a culture when your culture is the dominant culture. Right. So mm-hmm. I think it's hard for people. Um, and there's a lot of fear. And what's interesting about education is that everybody knows and is well aware and says that, you know, the reason why they're they're motivated to to advocate for these things is because we know it's not working, right? I mean, no one's delusional and thinking that we're doing, you know, education and schooling is going like super duper well. <laughs> and that was and that was even before 2020. So I think if we all understand that it's not working well, then if you really look at asset pedagogies for what they are and not whatever, you know, whatever mass media you're consuming is trying to tell you that it is, um, you'll see that there's a lot there for all students. And mm-hmm. it's about it's about humanizing our experiences. It's not about, um, you know, it's it's not about what folks are being misinformed into thinking that it's about. Yeah, thank you for that. That put it, that was way better than how I was describing it. I know, like, yeah, we're we're building off each other here. Yeah, I think it's important that we have these conversations in case there is anyone who may be misguided by by media right now, particularly. So I'm curious, explain to us, particularly what you are doing now, working with schools to build a more asset based approach to learning to build in more joy how joy and equity is all wrapped up into one and i know i just gave you like five separate questions there but tell me all about it yeah yeah so um to start with it's really important for me for people to understand that joy and equity work and all of this is deeply interwoven and i think people and that's and i think you probably experience this a lot with your you know your message of kindness right people Mm -hmm. think that they can divorce kindness from identity people think that you can divorce kindness from equity but how can you be kind to somebody if you tell them that their culture and who they are has no place in the in the school building Mm -hmm. i mean can't that's that's just not how kindness works. And so I think for a lot of folks, we have to um, look deeper than, you know, just just the the surface level of kindness and joy and see that when you're when you're joyful with your students, they are joyfully able to be the fullest version of themselves. So I'll give you an example that I was just reading about um just today. So there's this, there's a senior in Texas who has dreadlocks and who was expelled. Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring. Laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For having dreadlocks, right? And one of, and if you look at this school, if you go and look up the school, one of their values is kindness. The other one is respect. They have all of these school values on their website. So, how do you have a school value of respect and kindness when you basically told somebody that the way that their hair comes out of their head is it, like you can be expelled for that? 
So mm -hmm. I think it's really, it's, it's on all of us to embrace a deeper understanding of kindness and joy. And we'll see how equity work just goes along with that. And I'm very intentional about bringing in joy because I think what did happen unintentionally in the wake of the much needed social justice revolutions that we experienced in 2020 was that people got this idea that equity work is like this really hard, nasty, arduous, back-breaking, you know, bend over labor. Like, huh, you're just like toiling away at equity work. And I think that like, that's, that, that's because of where we were as a country, because like, I mean, mm -hmm. it was hard. That was a hard summer. The summer 2020, you had to be there, right? That was like the crazy, that was the wildest summer. I don't think we'll ever experience anything like that. So it was really hard in that moment. But what I think is important is that people recognize equity work is not just about, you know, this negative, you know, listing out all of the wrongdoings that have ever been wrong to every person of color in this country. It's about making space for joy, for mm -hmm. identity, for liberation, for who you are, for resting, you know, for, for being the fullest version of yourself. And I think when people start to think of it that way, a, it feels less daunting because I know that there are a lot of well-intentioned, you know, white or cis or straight folks who are kind of like, I don't even know where to go because this feels like a marathon. Like I'm like, you know, trying to climb Mount Everest and it shouldn't feel that way. It should feel like something really exciting and life-giving mm. to, to embrace like the fullest sense of humanity in yourself and others. And so for me, it's all about operationalizing that. So all of those are really cool ideas. But what my job is, is to go into schools and classrooms and really narrow down in systems and practices and policies that are stopping that from happening and directly coaching teachers and leaders on how to stop doing those things <laughs> and, and what to start doing. So it, it's kind of taking this really big idea. And that's why I always talk about blending theory with practice, because again, in my doctoral program, you know, I write a dissertation, I read a lot of books and there's all these big ideas, mm -hmm. but I put for the teacher that's listening that is like, okay, yes, yes, right. And then goes to school the next day and is like, I agree with Deanna, but I don't know what in God's name she's talking about. Mm -hmm. because How do I do it? I have 28 kids and like four absent today. And then, you know, my observations tomorrow and I have a cold and I should really be at home. So I take all of those big things and operationalize them and help people recognize how they can do that on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis and what that really looks like in practice, if that makes sense. It makes so much sense. And as I'm listening to you, I am wishing that there were a million, a million clones of you all across <laughs> the U.S. and that this was required of every school because that's how much I'm hearing what you're saying and how much I believe in what you were saying. How long do you typically work with a school? Do you go in just for, you know, because uh, uh, it seems to me like this is something that should be ongoing. It, yeah. So usually what happens, and this is kind of like the dance that I do with schools. It's like a little, a little courtship dance. <laughs> you are like, okay, we can give you 45 minutes on one Wednesday. And then, you know, we start and the teachers like 
have a turnaround with a parent that they've always struggled with or like are building a relationship with a kid that they usually have to kick out to the office. And then they're like, wait, we need way, way, way more of this. So it mm -hmm. usually starts off with just one session. And I get it because people are, are overwhelmed and they've got a lot going on. And there's so many things like that to try to fit into that calendar. My goodness. Wow. And then I'm always a proponent of like if whatever you can make an email, make an email and skip the meeting. But I always say that my professional developments are, you know, these are meetings that could not have been emails. You'd really need to be there. And then um, usually if if the school is open to it, we shift into doing more coaching. And so that's what I love because I can go into the classrooms. I can talk to the teachers. They send me videos. They, you know, I build relationships and we talk about like this particular student and it kind of grows from there. And it, it usually starts with maybe your classroom culture. But then when what people realize too is like right now we are in a crisis of like engagement where teachers feel like they basically have to put on a three-wing circus to even get kids to watch them for more than two minutes at a time. So mm -hmm. once we start talking about culture, then we talk about, okay, well, let's talk about differentiation and your tier one structures that you have for instruction. And let's talk about like making centers, you know, feasible for you. And, and let's talk about your grading policies. Like where is like, where is that, where is um, inequity showing up in your grading policies? So we, we kind of get deeper and deeper and deeper. And so it it's usually starts with like one session, but then I love it when, you know, a school will say like, hey, we have a year, we're gonna do monthly meetings and to replace like one of our grade level meetings. And that mm -hmm. meeting focused on building that teacher's tools. And then they have it for the rest of their teaching careers and they, you know, spread it to the rest of the people in the classroom. So I'm really trying to build a movement here. <laughs> I <laughs> I am here for it. I am number one cheerleader. I want this to be a movement everywhere. Yeah. I mean, there's there's one of me, but if I can get like, or sometimes I get to coach an instructional coach and that's mm. what I'm really excited because it's like, if I can like download some of this into the instructional coach, yeah, boom, then it's like, then it catches like wildfire. So that's typically kind of the cadence of how it works. And our schools now purchasing your book at wholesale and like doing book studies surrounding it because i feel like the two having read it obviously this it's all about what you were doing and they really coincide with the work so i'm wondering how that yeah. has fallen into place for you that has been so fun when because there's also like a lot of so the more information you can get from the book the less talking i have to do and the more mm. like work you can do so i like to assign the book as kind of like a pre a preset and then that's like their pre-work their homework they can read it at their own time you know whenever at soccer practice or you know just hang mm -hmm. out on the weekends and then we can jump in and then then they have really good questions because they're like okay on page 26 you said da, 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 but i have a student that does this so what would you do in this case scenario right they can give you the really specific questions and we can dig even deeper. So usually, you know, right now schools are are doing the book studies. I also I'm working on a bunch of just free resources. So if you mm -hmm. can't do a book study, some with me personally, someone at your your school can do a book study. So you know, my thing is just getting the information out there. So working on this this book and having it as a reference for people, and and people have already you know they send me questions on Instagram now from the books too. I'm sure. Because, <laughs> you know, I have teachers all across the country. And unfortunately, there are some schools that are 
not open to this work because mm -hmm. they just see the word equity on the cover and they're like, oh, she is talking about critical race theory, you know, something crazy like that. So, mm -hmm. so I also try to make myself available to individual teachers because I get it. It's so hard to, mm -hmm. to get, you just, we're just not prepared in our teacher education programs to deal, to meet this moment. And no, it's rough. And if you're, if your district won't help you, then it's kind of like, just good luck, sink or swim, mm -hmm. you know, and then, and then they get burnt out in like a year and a half. So yeah. I also help teachers directly as much as they can too. That's amazing because having been an educator in the state of Florida, particularly, I mean, I focused on all of this and no one ever said anything to me ever. Like I yeah. never, people are like, what do you mean? Like you didn't have parents coming to your classroom saying, how dare you teach X, Y, Z? How dare you do that? And I was like, nope, yeah. nope, never. I mean, never was a thing. I had, I had books in my classroom that showcased two moms or two dads. I had books in my classroom that celebrated black excellence and joy. And now they're in some places being taken off shelves. No one ever, all I ever received. I mean, of course you get, you get angry parents throughout eight years of teaching right over like silly things, maybe, but it was never really more um, like a reflection on me. It was more like an overarching school policy yeah. or something. All I ever got was Miss Lambert, because I was an educator most of the time prior to being married. Miss Lambert, like you were amazing. We love all that you did for my child. We love that you saw my child. We love that you embraced my child. And then all of this yeah. happened. And when I tell you, I tell people all the time, this is one thing where you can kind of listen to some news about it. Like books really are pulled from shelves. My yeah educator friends in the state of Florida truly are facing some horrific things. Like my, um, my best friend in the state of Florida, she is married to a woman and she can't even have a picture on her desk of her wife. Like just simple, horrific things that are happening. Right. And, and it's making an impact. So Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.